So this morning we're studying Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. Before we read that passage, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now seek to study your word, to sit under the authority of that which it is you have to say, we pray, our Father, that you would help me as I speak, you would help us all as we hear. May we hear with hearts filled with faith, hearts filled with humility, ready to receive the word from God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 30, starting at verse 25, hear the word of God. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favour in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own house also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So Jacob now has a son from his favoured or beloved wife, Rachel. He has Joseph. And we're going to see that from this point on, Jacob is basically obsessed with his son, Joseph. 
The obsession that he had for Rachel seems to be transferred to Joseph. And pretty much from this point on, Jacob, all he really cares about is the well-being of Joseph. I'm not saying he doesn't care about himself. I'm not saying he doesn't have some care for the rest of his family. But honestly, it's Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. And he's worked out his 14 years. Remember, he agreed to seven years for Rachel. And by trickery and deceit, he was given Leah. And then he agreed to another seven years for Rachel. And so he got both sisters. Rachel and Leah as wives. He's worked out his 14 years and pretty much, therefore, all that he has is his wives. He wasn't working for silver or gold or animals. He was working basically for the food that they subsisted on and to pay off the dowry of his two wives, Rachel and Leah. At the end of 14 years, he's willing to walk away as long as he can walk away with his wives and children. I've basically had enough of you, Laban. I know what you're like. I've got my wives. I've got my children. Let me go. Laban is not overly happy with the idea for a few different reasons. If ever there was a man in the scripture that counts the bottom line, that counts the profit and loss column, it's Laban. If ever there was a man in the scripture that's worried about his income, worried about um, storing up gold and silver, that man is Laban. Laban's not overly impressed. And furthermore, according to that which we know of the cultural law of the day. okay, what do I mean by the cultural law of the day? Certain documents from basically civilizations in that age and in that area of the world still survive. There are legal documents. One of them, for example, is called the Code of Hammurabi. Certain documents set out things like if a man has a wife and children whilst in service of another man, whether or not that man has the right to his wife and children. According to the documents of the day, Jacob, being a servant of Laban, at the time that he received his wives and their children, has actually no claim to them. They're the possession of Laban. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 43, a bit further on, we might well cover that passage next week. When Laban finally catches up with the escaping Jacob, he makes this complaint. The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. It's all mine. Everything you've got, it's mine. It's up to me whether or not I let you have it. It's all mine. And you might think to yourself, well, that's not very nice and it's not a good way to treat your son-in-law and you're probably right. But according to the legalities of the day, according to the custom of the day, that is actually the way people thought. And there's actually a very similar passage in Exodus chapter 21, verse 4. So in the law that was given to the Israelites, and I'm not talking now specifically of the Ten Commandments, which were the law that was written by the finger of God upon the tablets of stone, but in the social law or the case law that was given to the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 4, we read, If his master gives him a wife, this is concerning setting free a slave. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. In other words, the departing slave had to actually literally buy his own wife and children off his owner. That was the law of the day. 
So Joseph is kind of making a very bold play. He's basically saying, I'll walk away with nothing if I've got my wife and children. I'll walk away with nothing. I came to you with nothing, I'll walk away with nothing. His, his thinking, I think, is it's about time I got back home to Isaac. I've got an inheritance there. As long as I come back with a wife and children, I'll be okay. It's interesting that he calls the place that he wants to go to my own home and country. And I think that indicates that we're speaking or reading here about a man of faith because his own family doesn't actually own that country yet. Remember, all they own is the burial ground that Abraham bought. It's still the country of promise. They're wandering around the land of Canaan. God has promised that the land of Canaan will be inhabited by them and their descendants, but they don't own it yet. They're strangers and sojourners. Yet he calls it my country, my land. Why? Well, I think Jacob is already trusting God and I think we're going to see even more of his trust of God. So Laban replies that, look, I've become fairly wealthy with you around and I understand by divination, not a man of faith, by divination. What does he mean by divination? I don't know. Was he consulting the tea leaves or the chicken guts or whatever it was? I don't know. But I understand by divination that the only reason I'm blessed is you're here and your God is the one who's blessing you. And I'm getting blessed through you. So I want you to stay. Name your wages and I will give it. And now we get the horseplay, the, the horse trading, I meant to say, the auctioning almost, the arguing back and forth. Now, I want you to stop now and before we get into this um, discussion of how Jacob is going to collect his wages, think of the things that Jacob has said and done before. Go back to the day that he was seeking the blessing of his father, Isaac. What was he willing to do and how was he willing to obtain that blessing? And the answer is he was willing to lie and cheat and steal. He was willing to make a fool of his own blind father. He dressed himself in sheepskins. Remember, he dressed himself in his brother's clothes so that he had his brother's B.O. And then he covered his hands with sheepskins. And then he went to his blind father's tent and said, I'm Esau. Give me the blessing. He made a fool of his father. Lying, cheating, stealing. That was the way he got what he wanted. When he wanted something, he did whatever he had to do to get it. Because there's some strange stuff going on in this passage. What is the strange stuff? What's, what's with all these sticks and all this stuff? What's going on with all these sticks and all this stuff? Well, I want you to think of how it is that Jacob chooses to get what he wants this time. Because it's clearly not lying, cheating and stealing. We'll get to that a little later, but think about it. I want you to think of another thing that Jacob has said. Back at chapter 30, verse 2, which we were looking at last week. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? What is Jacob's understanding of offspring? 
and how one gets offspring. Now, stop. I'm not talking about the biological means by which which, um, um, birth or conception happens. Okay, anyone here, we know what the biological means by which babies are made is. Who makes the biological means work? Jacob knows. It's God who makes it work. It's God who blesses with fertility. It's from God that children come. And now five seconds later, I remember the word I was trying to think of, procreation. We all know what the biological means of procreation is. Jacob says to Rachel, offspring come from God. It's God who does these things. What's the point of yelling at me? Am I God? Am I in the place of God? I want you to remember that as we look at this process of breeding up his flock that Jacob goes through. So looking now at verse 29 of our passage, Genesis 30, verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he lays his complaint at the feet of Laban. I've got a wife, I've got children, and I have nothing else. I've made you wealthy, I have nothing. And I'm willing to walk away with nothing, except my wife and children. I'm actually willing to walk away with my family and leave you with the wealth. But Laban's thinking, I want more. You know, wealthy men, they make millions and millions of dollars. Very rarely do they say, and now I've got enough. You know, they're always willing to do another deal, always looking for another property, always looking for another business. Very rarely do they stop and say, you know what, I've got enough. Laban says, what shall I give you? And Jacob says, you shall not give me anything. I don't want you to give me anything. I don't want you to be able to say that you have made me rich, even though later on he claims that he did. He said, "Um, I will pass your flock again, but let's set up a deal. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting. The deal that Jacob proposes is a deal whereby the actually less common portion of the flock becomes his. The less, the, the less numerous portion of the flock becomes his. Generally speaking, the herds that, in the herds that he was looking after, the sheep were generally white and the goats were generally dark coloured. That's the general pattern. And then, um, you know, speaking as a farmer, someone who's been trained in agriculture, um, basically every now and then you would have, you would, you would throw to the recessive line. Like if I ask you, I'm sure most of you know, Angus cattle. What's the colour of an Angus? Do you know the answer? Black. They're the jet black ones that have no horns. They're, they're jet black. But guess what? Every now and then the jet black Angus, they throw a red one and you can get red Angus. It happens every two or three generations. And if, if the man involved is a purebred breeder, he'll actually send the red ones off to the slaughter yard. And not keep breeding from them. But then occasionally, and there's a few of them around about the place, if you ever look them up on the internet, you get a breeder who says, you know what, I want to be different to everybody else and I'm going to be a red Angus breeder. And they contact all the other Angus breeders around about the place and say, if ever you have a red one, send it my way. And they put together this herd of red Angus. And 
Eventually, they throw red, 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 and the occasional black. (laughs) But anyway, back to Jacob and these flocks. He's chosen what we would call the recessive genes, the ones that are not dominant. He's chosen the less common for himself. He said, I'll take the dark sheep and I'll take the spotted and speckled goats. And when the time comes for me to part, to depart, you look over my flock and you'll see that all my sheep are dark and all my goats are speckled. And you'll know that I haven't stolen from you. And Laban thinks to himself, well, you don't get them very often. You know, I have white sheep and dark coloured goats. This kid's a fool. He's worked 14 years for two daughters that I called cow and sheep. If you don't know, Leah's the cow, Rachel is the sheep. That's the literal meaning of the words. He's he's worked 14 years for two daughters that I called the cow and the sheep. And now he's going to work for as long as he works for the least numerous or least common beasts in my flocks. I'll take that. I'll take that any day. That really suits me. That's good. Beautiful. And so he says, yes, good. Let it be as you have said at verse 34. But remember, Jacob was the deceiver. Well, it turns out that Laban was a better deceiver than Jacob. Laban was um, a master cheat. And look at what he does at verse 35. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black. And he put them in charge of his sons and put them three, pardon me, three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Three days journey, probably 12 to 15 miles apart. His thinking is, not only, you know, his thinking is not only is he taken the least numerous part of the flock, but I'm going to make absolutely certain that he gets almost nothing out of this. This kid will never leave me. He's going to spend forever making my flocks more and more um, multitudinous. They're going to get, he's going to, he's going to raise up more and more of my beasts. I'm going to get wealthier and wealthier and he's never going to have enough to strike out on his own. I'm going to divide the flocks right now before Jacob even walks through them. And he does that. And so now I just want to stop for a moment and speak about farmers and livestock. I've bred livestock, sheep and cattle. I, I know a little bit about it. I'm, let me just tell you a few things if, if um, you don't know it. First of all, as a farmer, especially as a believing farmer, there is nothing more likely to make you the ultimate pragmatist than trying to farm. In all honesty, as a believing farmer, all right, you, you give up on magic tricks. You really do. Because you realise that everything you're doing as a farmer is completely under the providential hand of God. It really doesn't matter how good our science is. And our science these days regards agriculture is so much better than ever it was. The truth of the matter is you're still completely under the hands of God. What do I mean? Well, for example, Thursday, I was in the Shepparton area. I had to pick up apples, 30 tonne of apples. And I was speaking to a farmer and he was complaining. He said, it won't be long and I'm going to have to bulldoze out all of my trees. I said, why? He said, we've gotten so much rain. I've got pumps running, trying to pump the water off my fields. But if this, this wet weather keeps up for another two or three weeks, the roots of my apple trees are going to go rotten and I'm just going to have to bulldoze the whole lot out, wait till the ground dries out and replant. 
I'm going to lose the lot. This guy was a good farmer. I mean, if you saw his operation, if you saw his operation, this, this guy, he's, he's putting through his, uh, through his um, operation literally thousands and thousands and thousands of tonnes of beautiful apples. Okay, from the centre of his farm where I was being loaded and he had loading docks, the whole deal, I, in every direction that I looked, all I was looking at was his apple fields out there in the distance. He said they're all going to die if this rain doesn't ease off. Completely under the providence of God. And if you lose them, you lose them and you start again. If you've got wheat in this rain and that wheat is heavy with grain, the rain that is falling so heavily in Victoria at the moment, it's likely to break the stalks. The seed falls down to the ground. Very little chance that you'll actually get your mechanical harvesters to pick most of that up. The wheat is there, but it's not going to be harvestable. You're not going to actually be able to get your mechanical harvesters to draw that in. If you've got 5,000 acres of wheat, it doesn't wheat. It doesn't matter if it's come to five tonne to the acre, which I'm telling you is a very good crop. If the rain has flattened everything to the ground, you're looking at a loss. And we've got the science to get extremely good crops. We understand more about fertiliser and chemicals than ever has been understood. And all of these seeds have been bred to have certain characteristics and certain production levels. But once again, still, you're completely under the providence of God. You sow your crop, you do everything you possibly can, you do it all to the best of your ability, and then you stand back and you hope that God blesses it because otherwise you'll have nothing. It's as simple as that. That's the farming process. We do everything we possibly can to make sure it's right. We use all the science we can lay our hands on these days to make sure that we get the best. And in the end, we stand back and we have to trust God to make it work. Go back into ancient days and even more so, the farmer understands he does all that he can and still he's completely under the hand of God. The next thing I want you to know with regards to anyone who's breeding any kind of livestock and paying attention to their livestock. Now, there are farmers who breed livestock only for, for example, the slaughterhouse. They buy steers that are young, they fatten them up, and as soon as they reach a certain weight, they're off to the slaughterhouse. Those guys don't worry too much about breeding. They, they simply want what they call a hybrid that will grow quickly and put on a lot of muscle. But if you're worried about breeding, if you're worried about breeding to an outcome, if you are considering yourself to be some kind of purebred breeder, well, on one of the farms I used to work on for a while, I worked on a dairy farm. We milked about 100 cows every day. We knew every single cow by name, by registration number, and we knew every, every generation four generations back. You should simply ask Myself or my boss, my employer, what about that cow? Ah, that's number 275. Her name is Victoria Siona. Her sire was Lynn Mac Chris King. Her dam was Victoria Eleanor. And we can just go right back through all of that for you. We can reel off numbers, figures, you name it. Farmers who are breeding livestock pay an enormous amount of attention to the stock that they're breeding. An enormous amount. You'd be surprised. They know every detail that it's possible to know. 
I think of another um, group of breeders I know, they filled notebook after notebook after notebook. Not only did they remember these things, they could give them to you straight out of their mind, but they had a room filled with notebooks. They wrote it all down to make sure it was never forgotten. Okay, so at verse 37, we have Jacob taking fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeling white streaks in them and exposing the white of the sticks, etc., etc. He's placing these things in the sight of the stock when they breed because he wants stock that resemble his deal with Laban. Remember, he's going to take the black lambs, the spotted sheep and the speckled goats. Do we think, and and I mean this, do we think that Jacob thought that the sticks were going to magically change the offspring? It's a question. Do we think that he thought that he was working some kind of magical folk, folk magic here? Somehow or other, by doing this, he was going to change the offspring. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that no, he didn't. I know there are many who would say, yes, he was. He was just a primitive man after all. Well, as soon as you start saying he was just a primitive man, well, you're basically calling into question his faith and everything. Well, it was easy for primitive men to believe in God, but we're modern men, etc., etc. I'm not interested in that kind of talk. I, as far as I'm concerned, Jacob was at least as intelligent as we are and may well have been more. Jacob was a man of faith. He had received, if you remember, a vision from God. He had seen the ladder which stretches to heaven. Jacob knew what he was about. So what do I think is going on here with these sticks? I'm going to call them something like signs of his faith. Prayer reminders. Remember, this is Jacob who was formerly the cheat. Formerly he was deceitful. He was a liar. He was prepared to disguise himself. He was prepared to fool people to get what he wants. Well, now Jacob is trusting God. Jacob has really put God to the test. This is a bit like the moment with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, that's a sort of a high point in the Old Testament. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal, they had a beast that was upon a pile of wood and they were trying to get fire to come down from heaven and take it up as a burnt offering. And by the end of the day, they'd given up. They'd cut their arms, they'd shed their blood, they'd done all of the magic incantations that they knew and nothing happened. And then Elijah said, cover my offering with water. Get so much water that the water's running off them and it fills a ditch around the offering. I want you to soak this right through. And then he called on his God and God sent down fire and burnt up not just the offering, but the water that was in the ditch. Okay, well, this is a similar moment in the life of Jacob. You see, Jacob is putting the promise of God to the test. God has promised Jacob that he would be blessed and that through him all of the world would be blessed, and that he had inherited the promises that had been given to Abraham and to Isaac. And Jacob is here putting God to the test. Okay, I'm going to negotiate with Laban, and I'm going to make a negotiation with Laban that he thinks is so much to his own advantage that he's going to jump at it. And then I'm going to trust God to make it work to my advantage. You see, he's not lying, he's not cheating, he's not stealing. He's leaving this in the hand of God. Okay, he's got his sticks of wood. Well, 
Do you have anything in your life that you use as a reminder to prayer? As a reminder to pray, do you keep a notebook, for example? Do you have a certain place that you go to when you want to study? People use all sorts of prompts and reminders in their lives. The Israelites, as they entered into the promised land, they put a big rock up and they called it Ebenezer. The whole point was every time we look at the rock, we remember that God brought us this far. He takes these sticks and he sets them in front of the beasts. I'm, I'm considering this to be an act of faith on his part. Now, let's ask a question. Well, should I do something like that? <laughs> should I start peeling sticks and stuff like that? And I'd say, please don't be silly. Please don't be silly. You, don't have, you have the New Testament. Jacob did not. You have the writing of the apostles. Jacob did not. You have the Gospels. Jacob did not. Jacob believed the same gospel that you believe. He believed that God would indeed send a redeemer. He believed that God would indeed send a saviour and that saviour was going to come through, as it were, his own loins, in, in, to put it in the language of scripture. He believed these things, but remember, he believed in a light that he could see on the horizon. Dimly, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Jacob also saw the day of the saviour and he rejoiced. But we've got the full light of day. Remember, Jesus tells us that we've got the light of day and we work while it's light. We've got the Gospels. We've got the writings of the apostles. Okay, what was okay for Jacob, i.e. these sticks, these symbols of his faith, they're not necessarily okay for us. So Jacob put out these sticks and trusted God to give him the offspring that he wanted. He did all that he could and then he left it in the hands of God. And then every time something was born that suited the deal, if he had a speckled or a spotted sheep, a black lamb or a speckled or spotted goat, he would set that apart into his own flock. He's dividing them off. And there, and what's more, what's more, he made sure that it was the stronger that were his own. Verse 41, whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Was he cheating? Was he stealing? Was he lying? Actually, no, he was not. It's God that granted the fruit of the womb. It's God that granted the fruit of the flocks. It's God that granted the livestock in the colour that Jacob wanted. Remember how he got the blessing from Isaac. He cheated, he lied, he stealed. How is he seeking this blessing now? He's leaving it in the hand of God. Was it wrong that he wanted a good flock? Was that evil? Was that wicked? I don't think so. He had the promises of God. He knew that he had to raise a large family. He had two wives. He already had at least 11 children. I don't think Benjamin's on the scene yet. He needs livestock. He needs wealth. He needs to be able to trade. 
At verse 43, we're told the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. He was able to start trading sheep and goats for other things. He was able to build up a household kind of like his father Abraham had built up and kind of like his father Isaac had built up. He was able to become a man in his own right. And he was enabled to do this by God. Remember, always remember, Adam and Eve were told in the garden that they were to fill the earth and subdue it. That they were to go out into the earth, taking the knowledge of God with them and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, you don't do that as a pauper. You don't do that as someone who's struggling to draw every breath. Now, I'm, I'm far from a prosperity preacher. Okay, if some fool tries to tell me that if I put $100 in the plate, tomorrow God gives me a new refrigerator, I'll laugh in their face. I don't want to know them. Okay, that kind of nonsense ought not be preached. But here's what I want you to understand. When God blesses, he blesses completely. He blesses thoroughly. Okay, you might go through many testings and trials in your life. And there are, there are times when it doesn't work and the business goes broke, whatever. And your every hope gets dashed against the rocks. But ultimately, when God blesses, he blesses completely. You might not be ready for wealth just yet. You know, I've, I've often used the illustration of our first business. We ran a business for 10 years. We walked out of it with a bag of loose coin and a half paid off car. Nothing went right. You know, we had the recession we had to have and business finance got up to 16.8% per annum interest. Nothing went right. We learned a lesson or two or three or four or more. Be willing to receive those lessons. Jacob worked 14 years to pay off his wives, to pay off, you know, to, to, to own his own family, so to speak. He worked 14 years. And his complaint was he had nothing for his household. I'm your servant and we're living on whatever you let us have. The milk we drink, we get from your flock. The meat we eat, we get from your flock. I need to build up a household of my own. We're not here to get wealthy. Indeed, many are called to poverty. It's actually listed as a gift of the Holy Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians. Poverty. Some of us are called to have nothing. That's the way it is. But God is blessing Jacob and God is setting Jacob apart from the world around him. And my friends, we as Christians need to understand if we are to be truly the people of God, we are to be visibly set apart from the world around us. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to be poverty struck. Okay, it's Christianity that made Australia the wealthy nation that it is, even if our leaders this day deny it. It's still the fact that the... That the um, that the governing bodies, that the, that, the, that the system of rights, that the freedom that we enjoy, etc., etc., all of these things were put in place by what once called itself a Christian nation. The fact that they are slowly being eroded and taken away from us is not in any way a coincidence when we think about the godless people that rule these days and the godless heads of various government departments sold out to secular thought, Marxism, etc., etc. As far as they're concerned, if you listen to them, they'll try and tell you that Christianity is what's destroying our society and holding us back from progress. And that's why it was that a man got fired from a football club. I mean, even a football club. I mean, 
You know, in my eyes, there's nothing more pointless, stupid or petty than a football club. I've played football. I don't hate sport. I haven't played that type of football, which is barely a sport, but that's all right. I've played football. I don't hate sport, but it's a, it's a sports club. You know, young men chasing a football around. And maybe they've got some women's teams. I don't know. Who cares? What's the importance of it? You know, the world doesn't uh, fall. You know, civilization doesn't come to an end if the football club's not playing football. But perish the thought that there'd be a man with responsibility there who once went to a church where a pastor once said that marriage is only between a man and a woman and that homosexuality is a sin. Oh, my goodness, perish that thought. We couldn't have that. Well, in a way, I'm kind of glad that happened. I'm not glad for the person's sake. I know, I know it must have hurt. I know it must have felt like a real slap in the face and banging your head against the wall, etc., etc. But um, too many Christians in Australia for too long have been under a delusion. We've been under a delusion for too long. We sort of think that we can fit in. We've come to think that we can fit in. You know, it's been comfortable here for us in Australia for so long. And, um, you know, I mean, when I, when I went to primary school, right up to uh, the start of high school, we were still saying the Lord's Prayer in our little public school. It was a government-administered public school. And every day you'd walk into your classroom and you'd stand by the desk. You weren't allowed to sit down until we'd said the Lord's Prayer. I'm not saying that that was a difference or how, how would I put it? I'm not saying that... Um, our civilization stood or fell upon children saying the Lord's Prayer. But the point I'm trying to make is that that was a government school on government property under government administration and it was considered perfectly acceptable that the children were taught to pray. We're not like that anymore. And the idea that somehow or other if we're just nice enough and I'm not saying we shouldn't be polite and I'm not saying we shouldn't be as... Um, to use the phrase, to be as winning as we can. But if we're just nice enough, surely they'll accept us. Well, you know what? The day's going to come when they won't. What does the world want from us? What does the world want from everyone here? Well, I would say that the world wants two things from us. Two things. They want our children. They want our children. Get it clear in your mind. If you are bringing children into this world, you are bringing them into a battlefield and you must fight for their souls. God has set you in place as their ministers, as their priests, as their prophets, as their parents. Fight for their souls. Educate them according to the word of God. Educate them according to the truth. Do not entrust them to servants of the world. And I mean it. Do not entrust them to people who are going to teach them lies. You have a duty. Teach your children the truth. Notice something here in the world at the moment. It's only Christians who have any happiness and any hope and who are bringing children into the world. I can almost guarantee you. It's, it's almost a guarantee. And sometimes I ask the question just to find out. You're out and about. You meet a relatively happy family of four or five children. Try and find a way to start talking to them. I bet you'll find out in the end that they're some kind of Christian. Okay, because I'm telling you that if you start looking for it, you'll find that 
So many people who think they're educated and progressive and advanced are saying things like, well, I will never bring children into this world. I'm a young man and I'm having a vasectomy at the age of 18, so I cease to overpopulate the earth. Oh, and by the way, it means I can have sex with all sorts of girls and not get any of them pregnant. But don't think that way, I'm righteous. I'm righteous. Women are saying the same thing. There was an article in, on news.com.au. Ten reasons a woman was saying, well, I'll never have children. You know, and I, I, I confess, I admit to you that I'm known for dark humour and very nearly put a comment below it. And the tenth and the eleventh reason is that you're such a sour old cow that no man would go near you. But they don't. No, I, I, don't, need to, I, I don't need to stir up trouble. I don't need to attract hatred to myself, even though I thought that way. We've got to be different to the world around about us and we've got to fight for these kids that God gives us. You know, if, if, if the church retained its children in general, I'm not speaking of this particular church or your particular church, I'm speaking of the Australian believing church in general, if the church actually retained its children, we would be twice the size, three times the size, four times the size, who knows. How many of us, when you think about it, know Christian parents who for some reason or other, in some way or other, have actually lost their children to the world? And and all of us are saying, actually, yeah, I know. I do know people like that. I believe that they themselves are Christians, but somehow or other, their children have been lost to the world and we're praying desperately for the grace of God to bring them back. You know, I, I believe in election. I believe that God has redeemed only those whom he has redeemed. I believe I believe in what they call limited atonement, that most hated of Calvinist doctrines. I believe it fully and totally. But have a good look around for most of us. For most of us, I'm not saying all of us, some, some are like me, there's some genuine, con- that's the wrong word. Some are like me, there's some converts out of the darkness amongst us. Some of us are converts from Genuine darkness to light. That's my experience. But for the most of you, you've been raised under the word of God. For the most of you, you've been raised in a God-fearing family and you have believed what you were taught. It doesn't make you any less a Christian. I'm saying that it does not make you any less a Christian. I used the word wrongly there. I'm sorry. I actually honestly apologise. Our children are born into an environment where they can be raised under the word of God. And I'm telling you, if they can have a testimony that says, look, I was taught the scriptures from the moment I can remember and I don't remember a moment where I ever disbelieved, I'm perfect. I, I, that's a wonderful testimony. Praise God for it. I'm happy for it. Okay? My own wife can't remember a moment when she didn't believe. She was raised in the church environment. She was raised going to Sunday school. She believed what she was taught from the beginning. I was not raised in that environment. I'm a convert at the age of 20. Neither of us is any more legitimately a Christian because of that experience. There's two things they want from us. As I've said, the first one is our children. I'll tell you what the second one is. The second one is that you sell your soul to the devil and announce your apostasy. The second one is that you give up on your faith and announce your apostasy to the world. That fellow that I've used as the example who was sacked from the football club. I don't know if you've seen any interviews of him. Okay, he's actually something of a gentleman. You know, I'll, I'll confess before you, I, I can be a bit abrasive. Someone pokes me, I'm likely to poke back. 
He's not like that. He's not, he's not that sort of abrasive in your face kind of personality. He's actually what you might call a gentleman, quietly spoken. He's almost apologetic that he believes those things that he believes. And notice something, my friends, it's not enough for the world around us. That's not enough. It's not enough that you believe what you believe and be ever so nice and gentle about it and apologise every second sentence. They don't care. If you believe, they want you to give it up. They want you to walk away from it. The only thing that they'll be happy with is that you throw your beliefs out the window and announce your apostasy. Then you'll get their approval. The, the trendy word for this these days is called deconstruction. I don't like the process, but the word's an interesting description because deconstruction does not, does not mean the same thing as destruction. Destruction's what happens when a bomb goes off. Deconstruction is what happens when you take a structure and you deliberately pull one piece out of it at a time. And these now apostate people talk about deconstructing their faith. Now, in the end, what they wanted more than anything else was something that was sinful. I'm telling you, that's, that's simply this. Whether they wanted the approval of the world, whether they wanted permission to um, live some kind of crazy sexual lifestyle or whatever it is, they wanted something that was sinful. But when they talk about deconstruction, they all talk in this way. Well, I used to believe, and I'll, let's throw the example up, I used to believe that marriage was only between a man and a woman. But then I met so-and-so who was just the nicest person that I'd ever met. Lovely, polite, gentle, helpful. And it turns out that so-and-so was a homosexual. Well, what right have I got to say that that so-and-so was sinning? I think he was just being himself. And so they took the first, imagining a wood structure, they took the first bit of wood out of it. They started the deconstruction process. Because what happens then is once you make the exception for so-and-so, whom you think is just the nicest, most gentle, lovely Christian person you've ever met in the world, even though they're homosexual, well, then you get stuck with the scriptures that say you're wrong. You get stuck with the book of Genesis, speaking of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you get stuck with the book of Leviticus, talking about the fact that when a man lays with a man as with a as, as with a woman, it's an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And you get stuck with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul speaks of homosexuals and adulterers, etc., etc., and says, such were some of you, clearly implying that what they once were, they no longer are. And so because you've made this exception for so-and-so over here, you've suddenly got to start making an exception to the things that the Scripture says. You know what? Um, yeah. I don't really submit to the Old Testament law anyway. I'm a New Testament believer. And with regards to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, well, you know, he was an ancient man of his day and he was born of the Jews and he's not quite as enlightened as we are these days. And who knows, perhaps the Holy Spirit is leading us to more openness and freedom. And you see what you've done. You might as well get one of those big black marker pens and you cover out some bits of scripture that don't agree with what you want them to say. And the deconstruction process has begun because next thing you get challenged with is something else. I won't keep going, but you get the picture. One bit at a time. In the end, they no longer believe that God created the male and female in his image he made them. 
In the end, they no longer believe that God is the creator of all things on heaven and earth and all things exist for his glory. In the end, they no longer believe that Jesus was truly, exclusively the son of God, truly man, truly divine. They no longer believe the very essentials of the Christian faith because I've become wise and enlightened and progressive. And then in the end, they say, I've deconstructed my faith and they announce their apostasy to the world. So what does the world want from us? It wants our children. Give them to us, the world says. Give them to us and we'll turn them into disciples of the world. And it wants our souls. Surrender your faith, announce your apostasy and be just like us. Whereas we're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be different to the world around us. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be light on a hill. Think of all of the metaphors that scripture uses to describe us, the called out ones, the sanctified ones, the saints, the children of God, Christians, just the very word Christian. In the book of Acts, it says, you know, it was, um, and I've forgotten the town, but it was in this place that the disciples first started to call themselves Christians. Well, what that actually, what that word actually means is little Christs, junior Christs. Children of Christ, of the household of Christ, born of Christ. Christians. My friends, God set Jacob apart by answering Jacob's prayers and giving him the flock that he was seeking. Giving him the beasts that he was seeking, the household that he was seeking, the wealth that he needed. Big family, lots of children. That was one of the things that God did for Jacob. And this is evidence of Jacob's transformation into a man of God. Remember, how did he used to get what he wanted? Cheat, lie and steal. Whatever I can do to get what I want, I'm willing to do it. What does he do now? He puts God to the test. He trusts God. He prays. My friends, be faithful to the God who has saved you. Be faithful to the Lord who has claimed you as his own. Don't back down. You don't have to apologise. You don't have to worry too much about the hatred of the world. Expect it. It's the world that hated Jesus. You know, we're too used to living in a society that was once upon a time built upon Christian foundations. There are those who are tearing those foundations up hand over fist at every opportunity they get. This is the time God put us in the world. This is the life God called us to lead. We're going to be set apart. We're going to be different to the world around us. As I said, in a way, I'm almost glad that the troubles seem to be starting because the church has been carrying too many half-hearted passengers for too long. It's just a fact. Do I wish there were numbers? Of course I do. Do I wish there were thousands upon thousands filling the churches? Of course I do. But I want thousands upon thousands filling the churches to be faithful to God, faithful to the scriptures and obedient to the commandments. And I want the ministers who are preaching to them to preach God's word as though it is the very word of God. I don't want numbers for the sake of numbers. My friends, it's for us to put God to the test. He's spoken to us. He's made us his own through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't have to cheat. We don't have to lie. We don't have to do things the worldly way. We don't have to. Jesus will not fail. The gospel will not fail. The gospel is victorious wherever it's preached. 
What do I mean by victorious? Let's turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians in chapter two. And I want you to find verse 14 and we'll read from there. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So stop. There's a triumphal procession and we're part of it. And we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. This is the triumph of the gospel. Now look at what Paul says about this triumph. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What's he saying? This preaching of the gospel is the aroma of God and it has impact on both those who are being saved and those who are perishing. What's the impact? To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So, my friends, here's the victory of the gospel. The gospel is separating the sheep from the goats. The gospel is separating the wheat from the chaff. The gospel is bringing God's people into God's kingdom. And those who will not believe, the gospel is confirming them in their unbelief. This is Paul's victory of the gospel. There's a price to be paid in hearing the word of God. God is constantly calling people to himself. And when we refuse, the heart is hardened in its sin. You say, hang on, you said you're a Calvinist. I thought you didn't believe in the free will. Well, I do, to a degree. (laughs) You know, I don't believe there's any such thing as a completely autonomous free will. You know, I don't believe that any single person is completely on their own, able to make a decision apart from the influence of anything and everything that is around them, that has been in their history and that, it is, and that is impacting upon them at that very moment. And I don't believe that any single person is able to make any decision apart from the nature that they have. People make decisions. It's true. But if your nature is sinful, if your nature is wickedness, if your nature is given over to evil, you will make evil decisions. But if you've been born again by the power of God's Holy Spirit, if you've been made alive, if you've been born from above, you will make decisions according to the nature God has given you. Said it many a time. What's this most simple possible summation of Reformed theology? And I didn't come up with this. This is, you know, you you get this from many a good teacher. It's really simple. Regeneration precedes faith. Being born again precedes believing. God grants life and then the living soul responds with faith. That's simply Reformed theology. When we preach the gospel... God is either granting life or leaving people in death. You know, he doesn't have to change anyone for them to be condemned and go to hell. They take themselves there. They decide every day that they want wickedness and sin. It's as simple as that. You know, if God leaves someone all to themselves, what will that someone do? Nothing but wickedness and sin. The more God leaves them alone, the more wickedly they will behave. 
That's what's hardening the heart. God withdrawing his grace. When God grants life, that life bubbles up from within and that person moves on in faith. And so, my friends, the victory of the gospel is the gospel both grants life and confirms death. It's victorious. It's the dividing point. It's the sharp edge of the spear. The word of God separates soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And we've got the gospel to preach. And we've got to live according to that which we preach. We've got to be different to the world around about us. You know, many years ago when I first became a Christian, we we weren't going to a reformed church. We were attending a different church. And, you know, that's where I met Lisa. Um, That church was, I would call it mildly evangelical, softly evangelical. And the preaching of that church was kind of trying to always make the point that um, you can be just like you are, but you believe in Jesus. Nothing much has to happen. You just believe in Jesus and be as nice as you can. And, you know, it was that it was that very, um, very, I'll use the word. um, Well, when I say apologetic, I don't mean apologetics as in scriptural apologetics, where we're trying to um, explain the meaning of the word of God and the revelation of God. I mean, always seem to be apologizing for being a Christian. Always seem to be trying to present the softest possible face. And, um, you know, even that's not enough anymore. If the world likes a church, I can guarantee you that church is not preaching the gospel. That's the day we live in. We must be set apart. We must be different to the world around us. Because we have the word of God and they do not. We don't do things in a worldly way. We don't cheat. We don't lie. We don't steal. We do things in a faithful way. Our God is gracious. Our God is faithful. He will act according to his promises because he cannot lie. And that's where we stand, my friends. We stand upon the word of God. We stand upon the truth of the word of God. We trust in the promises of God. And we're preaching a victorious gospel, whether you believe it at this moment or not. I'm only telling you what the scripture says. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the scriptures that you have given to us, that we may understand your will. We thank you, Father, most of all, that there is salvation to be found through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray, Father, that this gospel would go forward victorious, powerful and doing your work. The scripture tells us that your word will not return to you apart from having accomplished the purpose for which you sent it. Father, we pray that it be so, and we pray that we spread that word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.